Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. And I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that's right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we'll begin with verse 1. I'll read all the way through verse 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May God bless the reading the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records a strong warning by Jesus, and it begins this way. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus issues a revolutionary declaration against dead religion and hypocritical self-righteousness. And he warns us of this, that the greatest danger to our Christian faith is turning it into dead religion or bloated self-righteousness by the act of legalistic adherence above cultivating personal righteousness. 
Now, there's two truths that we need to lay down and take hold of today in order to understand our righteousness as Christians. And the first truth I want you to understand is this, that as Christians, we are made righteous in Jesus Christ by his righteousness being placed upon us. This is all grace. It is no personal merit. It is no personal achievement. It is all grace. And there is no measure of incompleteness in our righteousness before God. I mean, you, wanna, you want something to focus on this year? Focus on that. That the righteousness that Christ places upon us in salvation is not incomplete or insufficient in any manner before God. In Jesus, we are completely justified. Now, the second truth that we need to take up today is this, that our whole life, our whole life, every attitude, every inclination of the heart, every word, every action, our whole life is a process of cultivating this reality of Christ's righteousness having been placed on us in salvation. So in Jesus, we are, the Bible says, sanctified incomplete in no way. And this is where a lot of confusion often comes in for Christians many times because that word sanctification, if we're not careful, will only make it a process where we're working toward the end goal. But the fact of the matter is, it is fully complete at its beginning. And the process by which we are completely entailed in in this life. So it has a dual meaning. It, it's it stems from, it's a, it, it catalyzed out of our justification. But our sanctification does not mean that one day we're going to be better than we are. No, as a matter of fact, when the Bible says that we are sanctified, it is complete. It says something about us that is true of us now completely. And yet, in this life, we are continuing to work it out. You see, this is often where great confusion arises for many Christians. But listen to this. The reality that we commit sins in this life in no way, shape, form, manner, or degree negates the fact that Christ's righteousness remains upon us. Let that sink in, Christian. In no way. Christ's righteousness grants to us the grace to walk with God in Jesus Christ by faith. And so you might ask, but, but how is it that I know how to do this, Pastor? Well, what I want to offer to you today is to live for the one reward of God as your one priority in life, more Jesus and that's what I want you to walk away with today, that Christ followers live for one reward by one priority. More Jesus in our life and in glory upon the earth. More Jesus. With this revolutionary declaration that Jesus makes here, he turns dead religion on its head. He turns the Pharisees' teaching inside out and he exposes the deception of legalistic teaching. What is legalistic teaching? Legalistic teaching is hope aimed but is personally dependent. Yes, you can have God if you can get him. If you can reach him, if you can achieve him, if you can earn him. That's legalistic teaching. So it really doesn't matter where it begins or what it centers on. It always says it's dependent fully upon you. 
And that's not the gospel at all. That's not the gospel at all. As a matter of fact, I start with the understanding of our righteousness because when we live from our righteousness, we can walk by faith, confident in Christ. But when we live trying to earn our righteousness, our justification, our uh, our okayness with God, if you will, there is a striving to us that will exhaust us to no end. And frustrate us the same. You see, friends, righteousness that is practiced to be seen by others is the embodiment of self-righteousness. And it is the antithesis to true righteousness. That's not what God intends for us. And so what he does here is he uses three areas of application for the practice of righteous deeds. And he he talks about giving to the needy. He talks about praying. And he talks about fasting. Now, these are not the only righteous deeds in our life. We know this from an abundance of teaching in the New Testament. But these are three that Jesus chose to use to apply the illustrate and to illustrate and apply what he was saying here in, in us to not practice our righteousness in order to be seen by others, but to be seen by God. There, there's no doubt why he used these either, because these three practices are central to cultivating our true righteousness in him. And in the first century, each of these were grossly abused by the religious leaders of their day. Grossly abused. And so I want us to look briefly at these. First of all, let's look at giving to the needy that he begins with in verse 2. Jesus says this. He's not telling us to to stop being generous. As a matter of fact, he teaches that, that, that generosity, true generosity, is one that holds no demand and, and holds no need to be seen by others, only to be known by God. That's what's truly the nature of generosity. But hypocrites do good deeds for others in order that not only those that they do them for might see them, but others might see them doing for them. And because of that, they would think more highly of the doer of those good deeds. There's no doubt this is why the beggar in Acts chapter 3 was hanging out at the temple gate. Because he understood the principle of good capitalism. And if the Pharisees and the religious people were going to live out of a guilt of what they ought to do, they were going to be at a prime place to receive whether or not it was the right good deed or not. Because they knew that their angst and their need to be seen by others was never more peaked than when they walked into the temple. And they were going to use that guilt to their own benefit. That's why you see the temple beggar in Acts 3, right there on the steps. So the religious people could be seen by all the others in the practicing of their self-righteous religion. But friends, giving to the needy is a very good deed. But when it is done for the praise of people, it becomes, Jesus says, a deceiving hypocrisy. Not for the receiver, doesn't mean that the needy don't still need, but for the one doing the act. Because the one that is acting is trying to make others think better about them than they themselves know themselves to be. And so the one that is deceived is the one that is practicing the hypocrisy. Rather, Jesus teaches this, that when we practice generosity, 
We shouldn't be concerned with keeping record. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he says. Right? He's not talking about put one behind your back while you hand it out with the other one. He's talking about accountability here. He's talking about good record keeping. And he's not trying to establish a universal principle for all giving. I've had some people tell me that, that, they, uh, uh, that they, they apply this to all of their giving. But that's in fact not what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about not just our giving but our generosity as a whole in the very way we live and not trying to keep record. Why? Because we would only use that record for our own righteousness. Did you see what I did? Or our own condemnation. I never do enough. Right? And both of those are gross deterrents to our spiritual growth and our goodness before God. You see, otherwise, if Jesus were applying a universal principle for all giving, he would actually be contradicting the Bible when we're told to count the cost, to consider what is before us, and to practice faithful stewardship. You see, friends, the record of our generosity is not the problem. The problem is the way that we use it to bolster our own righteousness before others. What Jesus is doing here is he's confronting the heart motivation, a giving that seeks validation, not generosity. And an attempt at earning something. You see, Christians practice generosity to bring glory to God in the helping of others' needs. Yes, we aim to reprieve the, the, the weight of the burden of need of people in the practice. But ultimately, we live generously to bring glory to God. Righteous generosity holds no demand for applause from others, nor a rationale for justification. That's the freedom of generosity there. I don't need to justify why I want to be generous. Jesus is my justification. He's been generous to me. I want to be generous to others. But righteous generosity only aims to help ease the needs demand because God has helped us and eased our great need in salvation. And so he makes this first application in giving to the needy. The second area of application he makes is in prayer. In prayer, Jesus teaches that we should never pray to be seen by others. Now, what's the background to what he's saying here? Well, if you do a little bit of research on the Pharisaical prayers, you'll find many of these very statements and phrases made in their prayers. Lord, thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here and this other decrepit individual over here and not like that pathetic uh, uh, excuse for an individual there and they would stand in the temple and these were the kinds of prayers that they would pray I mean by the time they were done everybody in the building felt horrible about themselves but there was an awkward cloud that hung over everything why because that's what religion does it just continued to jack themselves up in the eyes of everyone else instead of exalting Jesus. And so, so I, I, I'll just give you this one immediate application that comes to mind. So, so often when people, especially when they first become Christians, but, but often when they feel insecure in some way about their relationship with the Lord, they don't want to pray in front of other people. Friends, this teaching from Jesus should be the first one that releases us from ever feeling hindered about praying and surely even about praying in front of anyone else. 
Because Jesus says to us, it's not about the words you use. It's not about how polished you speak. It's not about the right phrases. That's what the religious teachers made it about. But Jesus says, it's just about communing with someone that you know. That's what prayer is all about. And so he says, when we pray, we should be in a place where we can meet with God. He says, go into your closet here, and, and surely there should be a time when in the, uh, in the intimate uh, recesses of our life, it's just us communing with God. But listen, you don't have to be in a, a small space to pray with God. What Jesus is saying to us here is, it needs to be a place where we can get with God. And with him, we can get in touch with him. We need not worry about saying the right or saying religious words, but our prayer should aim at this one purpose, simply building communion with God. Building communion with God. You see, Jesus' prayer that he goes on to pray has become known as the Lord's Prayer. Now, Jesus is not teaching us a single prayer to pray here. He's actually providing a model for how prayer should be done and can be done in order to build communion with God. It's a powerful prayer. There's no doubt about that. But he's telling us how our whole prayer life should be shaped around God's will for our life. And here's what he teaches. He teaches how our mind and our heart need to be centered upon God and communing with him in our prayers. Not just getting through a list, but getting with a person, God. He talks about how we must confess that, that he is the source of all of life's provision. How, how we need to release, or, or you might say repent, from that which we cannot control but we try to. And, and how we need to take hold of that which God has given to us but we've not taken hold of yet. Where, where we want to produce something in our own life but it's not within our ability or our power or strength to do so. We need to take hold by faith of what God is wanting to do in us and where he is leading us to let God work in us. And he's teaching us how he is our light and our guide for all of life in all things at, at all times. You see, every prayer doesn't have to include or, or shouldn't be a full expo exposition of every part of this. But surely the whole of our prayer life should be fully formed by every portion of this prayer. In other words, just beginning in praise and acknowledging who God is. And the thanksgiving that brings us into his presence. And, and, and praying for God's will to be set before us more than our own will that is from within us. That, that we acknowledge God's hand as the provider of every good and perfect gift that comes from him. Whether we've given commentary of liking it or not, we receive from him. And, and in, that, in that vein, understanding that his greatest gift is that gift of forgiveness. And that's the one that we're most hesitant yet should be quickest to dispel out to others, recognizing that when we act towards others in a way that God has not acted towards us, we are actually rejecting what God wants for us and what he's given to us more than we're doing something towards other people. And then ultimately understanding that, God, when I get up today and my steps go forward, lead me not into temptation away from your presence, but furthermore into your will than what you have for me. This is the way we learn to pray. And friends, prayer is never, here's the good thing, there's never a competition in prayer. There's never, uh, there, there's never a grade on prayers. 
Like prayer is just the overflow of the heart. And, and what Jesus is wanting us to do is to teach us to come to the Father, to commune with Him. Don't come before people trying to impress them in the way you talk to Him. And then the third area that He identifies is the area of fasting. This is the all-too-forgotten and forsaken pro, uh, practice of modern Christianity, for sure. Oh, we found some health benefits in it, but we've forsaken the spiritual practice of fasting far too often you see fasting is not simply doing without something for a reset or a purging in the immediate benefit that it brings but in the scriptures fasting is forsaking that which is essential for us food that which like we have to have it to live and it is forsaking that for a time in order to build a greater dependence on God in the pursuit of his ultimate for our life. Hypocrisy, though, uses fasting to garner favor from others. And so Christians fast to glorify God by building intimacy and greater alignment of heart and life with God. Fasting is not just about what we do without. Fasting is about what we are running after. The one whom we are pursuing in replacement of and in pursuit of what we have come to know as our ultimate need of, even above the provisions of this life in knowing that we need food and sustenance and nourishment for life. But we're trusting God even above that. And so these are the three areas that Jesus makes the application of his revolutionary warning and declaration. You see, the real issue that he's striking at here is the heart motive. Jesus is not teaching that we should never allow ourselves to be seen doing good deeds. After all, Peter tells us that when we are wrongly accused by others, we don't have to defend ourselves because it is our good deeds that people will actually see and be able to bring glory to God. Jesus is saying that we do not do good deeds so that we can be seen. We do good deeds so that we can glorify God who sees. That's the key there, friends. That's the key. Righteous deeds both demonstrate and strengthen our righteousness in Jesus, but they never make us righteous. Never. And when we find that we do them because we want to be seen by others in the doing of them, the right response is not that we stop doing them, but that we repent from a self-righteous motive and a self-striving earning of something that we cannot obtain in our own, but that God has already given to us in Jesus Christ. That's the real issue, the matter of the heart. The motivation that he gives to us here is that Jesus' focus is on the very heart of the matters. That in all your right deeds, consider why it is that you do all that you do. And what does Jesus say that should motivate our good deeds? Faith in God. Faith in God. Look at what he says. Jesus establishes the motivation for our righteous deeds in trusting what we know to be true of God. I want you to read what Jesus says. Go to verse 4. What does he say? So that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret, what? Will reward you. Verse 4. Go to verse 8. <clears throat> 
What does he say about praying? He says this, do not be like them, the religious prayers, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Why does God want you to ask him then if he already knows? He needs you to know as well. And I'm going to tell you, there's a difference between knowing something about myself and hearing something said about myself from my own mouth. There's like a reality that just kind of all of a sudden whoop, centers me on, oh my goodness. See, God wants us to come into the recognition. Look at verse 14. What does he say? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Is that making your forgiveness dependent on the other? No. The forgiveness in Jesus Christ is set forth by repentance and faith. What Matthew is teaching here, what Jesus is saying, is simply this. That you will not receive God's forgiveness because if you will not forgive other people, you are demonstrating that you've not yet received God's forgiveness for yourself. The refusal to forgive others is the greatest declaration of the rebellion against God's own forgiveness for you. I know it doesn't feel that way to us, but that's what Jesus is teaching us. And when we have received by faith the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we will begin to freely give that forgiveness to other people. Verse 18 and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Christian's practice of righteous deeds is for one reward. The glory of God. He, friends, is our motivating confidence. He is our one reward. And so our confidence in our righteous deeds is motivated, listen, by what we know of God. This is what Jesus wants to get to the heart of in this passage. He wants to motivate us by our very knowledge of who he is. And who is he? He is the God who sees. He is the God who hears. He is the God who knows. He is the God who cares. He is the God who forgives. He is the God who rewards. That's what Jesus wants us to believe. And not just believe, but hold to with every ounce of energy and with our very breath. Friends, when we practice righteousness from a heart of faith, God is the one who becomes our one reward. We desire nothing more than him. We desire nothing next to him. We desire nothing but him. It doesn't mean that's the only thing we get. But it means if we get nothing else and we get him, that will be enough for us and whatever we get with him will be because of him I want you to recalibrate your life around that this year that whatever comes in this year and it's coming rest assured he will be enough if he and he alone will be your one reward focus is to pursue that one reward by one priority. Since God is our one reward, our one priority is this, that we practice our righteousness to rightly reflect Jesus's righteousness in which we have been clothed. Christians practice righteous deeds for the sake of righteousness, because this is who we are. This is the new that God has made us, because our whole life is for His glory, and our whole aim and desire is to receive His reward 
of life. Friends, when you live with God as your one reward, his glory through our righteousness in Jesus lived out becomes the one priority of all of your life. You want nothing more than for the righteousness of Christ that has been put on you to be seen in every way in which you live your life. Christ followers live for one reward by one priority, more Jesus in our life and upon the earth to make him known. And so at a time of year when it's become popular for us to choose a word, I'm going to throw down some anti-bandwagon Caution. And I hope you receive this with the love that I offer it. You really have no idea everything God wants to do in your life this year. Do not limit him to a word, to a theme, to one thing that even in your prayers, you feel he is impressed upon you. Instead of choosing a word, Why not choose the word and say, God, all that you want to do in me, I want to have done in me this year. You see, Ephesians 3.20 reminds us of this. It tells us that you actually cannot imagine or fathom all that God wants to do in you and all that God wants to do through you. And so set that word in front of you and go, I thought it was this, God, but I know it's so much more than this that I've yet to even uh, dream up all that you want to see for me this year. So I say to you in this, set your goals and make your plans, but do not forget Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of the man plans his way, but it is the Lord that orders his steps. And if you will follow the Lord in this year, God will walk you further. He will walk you deeper. He will walk you higher. He will walk you lower. Wherever he wants you to go, he will walk with you because he will lead you in ordering your steps. But in all of these things, he will be with you. He will be with you. So instead of choosing a word, I exhort you today to focus on his word. In three practices, three practices I want to offer to you. Practice number one is this, trust. Trust. As you approach a new year, set your aim on trusting God more and self-less. Trust God more. Trust self less. Think more on what God has said instead of what you think or what you want. Go with what God commands instead of what you think. Do one thing every day that you know will honor God instead of one thing every day that you just feel like doing. And see if God won't show up in ways that you've yet to even conceive of. We often claim that we are waiting on God. We're waiting on God for an answer. We're waiting on God for a decision. We're waiting on God for a solution or some other end that we've determined that we need. When in actuality, the scriptures tell us that he is the one waiting patiently upon us. (laughs) Think about this. Think about this, when, when you are bending the will of God and leveraging God and you're, God, I'm waiting on you, I'm waiting on you, remember this, no, God is the one who is waiting on us, waiting patiently for us just to receive and to trust what he has said to us and to obey and walk 
in what he has established for us. Know this, that no matter what God will do, it will always begin by you trusting in him. Trust is the only way to live in the pleasure and the reward of God. Hebrews eleven six 6 tells us this, without faith, it is what? It is sometimes possible, absolutely not. It is impossible to please God. Trust is where it all begins. For whoever would draw near to God, it goes on to say, must believe that he exists and must believe that he rewards those who seek him. Why would the writer of Hebrews say that? Because our one reward is our one priority. That the shalom, the blessing of God on our life should be the whole consuming desire of our life. Trust is the issue, friends. Faith that is exercised in God's word, that becomes the key to unleash God's reward upon our life. You see, trust brings more Jesus in your life and it brings more Jesus through your life. It's never a matter of whether God wants to work in you, whether God wants to work on you, or whether God wants to work through you. God has already made that abundantly clear. The issue is will you trust him when he speaks and the answer is simple yes God will do that's why every promise of God in Christ Jesus is already yes the yes is given you don't have to wonder if God's going to answer your prayer but listen to me he can do nothing when you don't trust Mark chapter 6 verses 5 and 6 tells about Jesus going back to his hometown Verse 4 says he is a, the prophet is without honor in his own hometown. And then listen to what it says about Jesus reflecting on those he knew. He could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I don't know. Most of us would go, well, that's, that seems pretty amazing to me. But listen, friends. Even the most miraculous physical healing doesn't touch what God really wants to do in people's lives. Now, if that's your most immediate need, I want you to know I have no shame and no hesitation in praying for complete healing. I'm doing that for a number of friends right now. But I'm telling you, that's not the biggie that God wants to do. God has so much more and so much bigger plans than just our simple answers in this life. His his will, his ways for us are so much greater. His thoughts about us are so much greater than what we even need. He's not unconcerned about our requests. That's why he tells us, make them continually. He just wants to get our eyes off of our immediate needs and put them on his ultimate will. Verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. The greatest hindrance to Jesus working in your life in this year will be your unbelief. Your willful unwillingness to trust in him and the only way for more Jesus to invade more of your life will be to conquer that unbelief by trust trust releases you to live generously in every realm of life because you are unhindered by people's opinion and you are focused on God's reward for you listen to me friends in 2020 Focus on God's word to trust. To trust. 
Is there any area, any decision or circumstance where the Spirit of God would impress upon you today to say, you need to trust me in this place, in this way, in this direction, whatever it may be. Where is, where is God calling you to trust? Where has God spoken? And that question, that doubt, that speculation or unbelief remains just an inkling in your heart, but ever so present every time you're confronting it. That's where God wants to begin in 2020. And where he wants to take you is far greater than anything you've dared to conceive of yet. The second practice is to rest. Now, friends, rest is not simply more sleep. But it is a call to cease from self-striving in order to watch God work in all areas and ways of your life. This is really what Sabbath is all about. Taking that day a week to bring honor and glory to God, to rest from your striving, and to let God's work season and enrich and deepen in you. Let me ask you something. What do you need in your life? What do you need? What do you, if you could ask God for anything, if you got, now I'm not talking about rub a bottle and a genie's going to come out and you got three wishes. I'm just saying, what's, what's on the front of your heart right now? What do you need from God? Have you asked him? I, I didn't ask if you've talked to everybody else about it and how you want it from him. Have you talked to him about it and, and ask him? And put it in front of him and said, God, I need this. And, and in so doing, let me ask you this. Where, where is your confidence in that? Well, if you had to, 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 to have a confidence meter, you know, like this being off the charts and this being flatlined. Well, where are you at? Are you, are you dinging over here? Or are you kind of, are you just... Trying to move off a flat line. Is your confidence, like when you ask God what, what you need from him, knowing he's told you, make every request known of me, that, that he's already promised that every promise in Christ Jesus for you, Christian, is a yes, if you will believe and trust him. Where is your confidence in God this year? Are you even moving the needle? Are you just going through the motions? He told me to, so I did. But I'm going to have to go out and do it because I just don't think he's going to move it. This second practice addresses this. When you trust, you can rest. I'm about to put something on the screen that I want to let you uh, uh, say and sink in. I want you to rest in Jesus because you know the God who has promised. God, say it, sees. That's not what I'm, I'm not just preaching that. It's right here. In secret, when no one else sees, God sees. God God, 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 
God. So I'm just going to ask you, will you believe in what these verses say so much that when you have made your request known to God, you will rest in Him? Rest in Him. Take confidence. Leave that up there for a moment if you would. Listen, Grab hold of this. He has already answered your prayer. This is the God that we believe in. He has already answered your prayer, Christian. He is only awaiting the perfect time of his will to deliver it to you. You get that? It's just a matter of timing now. And it's a perfect timing. When you walk with Jesus, you can rest in his perfect will for your life. But you say, you you don't understand how anxious I grow or how impatient I grow. I actually do because those are things I'm very familiar with. But friends, the only thing that stands between your request and his answer is his perfect timing. And you can rest in Jesus because in his perfect timing, Jesus is doing far more than only delivering an answer. He is transforming his follower. He's changing you. He's changing you from the inside out. And the more you trust him, the more you will become like him and you can rest in him. And the more you trust so that you rest in him, the more you will come to see his complete favor upon all things in your life. The third practice I want to offer to you today is to pursue. Once you learn to trust and rest, You are free to run after Jesus. Here in the scriptures, it says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. You see, fasting is the original means of pursuing God and seeking his will for your life. It's not the only way, but I would argue it is the original way and surely the greatest way. When you intentionally remove what is most essential as an aspect of your life, nourishment, you begin to purge every area of false longing and hope. Nothing is more distracting than that little hunger growl. Am I right? It doesn't matter what you're doing. When it strikes, like you want to put down everything and satisfy it. This is a practice of throwing off every hindrance, like a sin that entangles in unrighteousness, and even like the good things that tempt us to look away from God. We are released by fasting to pursue God with an energy, with a fervency, with a zeal that is not inherently naturally our own. That's what fasting is all about. You see, fasting is a steroid of spiritual growth. It is a true practice of pursuing God. And what happens in fasting is that our outer life or our physical life is synced with our inner being. And fasting sets our whole focus on Jesus by exposing everything that clouds our view of him and competes with his rightful throne in our life. Because when that which you live for, God's reward, becomes the very motivation for why you live, that one priority, there is a unity of heart, there's a unity of mind, there's a unity of spirit that begins to operate within you. Here's what I've learned in fasting, and I, I, I'm not good at it. I'll just put it to you like that. I was trained to love food, and I do. 
But the smallest amount of fasting exposes with the greatest clarity the idols and the false hope that seems so little yet creates such an insurmountable barrier to my own growth and godliness. I mean, just the smallest amount. The smallest amount of fasting, though, can also produce the greatest growth in godliness and usually often more than I ever imagined. Do you know why? Because God rewards those who seek him. You're not, you're not trying to catch God. God has been caught because he's with you. But God rewards those who seek him above just what he can do by revealing who he is. Friends, righteous living, hear me, righteous living is its own reward. God sees and he rewards those who seek him. And so I, I exhort you in this year, trust. Rest. Pursue. Why? Because when you focus on God's word with these three practices in mind, you are seeking the very blessing of God, not just to be on your life, but to saturate you through and through. And it causes us to ask, is the God you know enough to motivate you in these ways? And if he's not, I say to you today, I need to introduce you to a new God who is worthy. Because the one we serve in Jesus Christ is worthy of all honor, of all glory, and of all praise. Friends, if all of your resolutions came true and were accomplished this year, let me ask you this. What would your life look like? Would it look more like Jesus? Or would it look more like something else? If all of your resolutions were accomplished this year, would more people know the name of Christ and his glory? Or would more people know some other name and the good that it could bring? What is your reward? And what is it motivating you to pursue as your one priority in life? Let's pray.